Hello, listeners. This is Iris, and you're about to hear the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, February 28th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's take a look at the weather forecast first thing, this one coming from KCRG. Winter chill is here for a day before return to late spring-like conditions. It's a totally different experience stepping outside in eastern Iowa this morning compared to recent days, but we'll get back to milder conditions soon. Strong, gusty northwest winds continue to bring in cold area to the region, which has driven air temperatures toward the upper single digits to mid-tens above zero this morning. Those same winds are making the temperatures feel like single digits below zero to as low as minus 20 degrees for a start, with only slow and modest improvement throughout the day. Wind chills will be in the upper 10s at best by the afternoon, as air temperatures reach the upper 20s to low 30s. On the bright side, sunshine should be widespread today, which may take a little bit of the edge off the wintry feel to the day. Winds stay blustery throughout the day, with gusts still approaching 30 miles per hour at times this afternoon. Eventually, they decrease toward the evening and begin to swing toward the southerly direction. This will help limit the overall fall in our temperatures tonight, despite clear skies, with lows only headed for the mid to upper tens for most of us. The shift in winds will actually be pretty key to sending temperatures back above normal by a comfortable margin on Thursday, with highs in the upper 40s north to the low to mid 50s central and south. It should be a breezy day, with lots of sunshine to go along with it. Friday will be similar, with widespread 50s for highs likely once again. The warming trend takes another leap toward well above normal conditions for the weekend, with mid-60s to around 70 degrees for a high on Saturday and mid-70s looking more likely by Sunday. Both of these days have a good shot at setting records for high temperatures once again. A decent amount of sunshine will be present on Saturday, with a few more clouds at times by Sunday. Both days will feature breezy conditions, with winds increasing toward the end of the weekend. This is as a storm system approaches once again, and it could lead to a chance for showers and storms by later in the day on Sunday into Sunday night. A few of these storms could be on the strong side, but the ingredients for severe storms don't look to be as present here for this round as they were in northern Illinois yesterday, for example. The cold front with this system will push temperatures cooler into next week, but it doesn't look like it will have the same access to significantly colder air like the one that moved through yesterday. Instead, highs slip into the 50s generally, with lows in the upper 20s to 30s on most days next week. A slim chance for some showers arrives at the very tail end of the nine-day forecast by next Thursday. We have two stories to read on the front page of The Courier today. The first one is titled, Iowa Justices Find Lawmakers Protected by Privilege in Ruling. Aaron Murphy of The Courier's Des Moines Bureau wrote this story, and the dateline is Des Moines. Even though not explicitly stated, the Iowa Constitution protects state lawmakers from being required to produce documents during court proceedings, and that privilege 
extends to communications with third parties, the Iowa Supreme Court has ruled. Quote, legislative privilege is implied in multiple sections of the state constitution, and that privilege extends to communications with third parties, like lobbyists and constituents, for example, so long as the communication is related to the legislative process, the court ruled. The ruling came Friday from a case in which the League of United Latin American Citizens had sought documents from a number of state lawmakers in the group's challenge of the constitutionality of changes to Iowa's elections laws. A district court ruled that state lawmakers should produce some documents from LULAC's request, but the Iowa Supreme Court, in a unanimous decision, overturned that lower court decision and quashed the subpoenas for the lawmakers' documents. The unanimous decision, written by Justice Dana Oxley, notes that the case presented the state Supreme Court's first opportunity to address whether the Iowa Constitution supports legislative privilege. That issue is more clear federally and in some other states whose constitutions have a speech or debate clause, which Iowa's doesn't, she noted. Quote, we now hold that the Iowa Constitution contains a legislative privilege that protects legislators from compelled document production, and that this privilege extends to communications with third parties, where the communications relate directly to the legislative process of considering and enacting legislation, Oxley wrote. Quote, However, we need not, and therefore do not, decide whether the legislative privilege is absolute or qualified, unquote. The court ruled that the Iowa Constitution effectively pieces together legislative privilege in three places, by expressly calling for a separation of powers between the three branches of government, giving state legislators a privilege from arrest during the session of the General Assembly, and protecting Iowans' right to make known their opinions to their representatives, unquote. Reaction to the ruling. LULAC has requested documents from 11 Republican state lawmakers as the group sought to prove changes to the elections law, which shortened early voting times, constrained early voting options, and eliminated absentee voting options, were designed to prevent or discourage minority populations from voting. Senator Jack Whitfer, the Republican Senate Majority Leader from Grimes, praised the ruling as a protection of Iowa's ability to communicate with their election officials without fear of legal retribution. Quote, Iowans and organizations they support must have the freedom to engage with their elected officials on issues of personal importance to them without fear of public retribution from their opponents, unquote. Whitfer said in a statement emailed to the Courier-Des Moines Bureau, Joe Enriquez Henry, executive director of Iowa's LULAC chapter, expressed disappointment in the court's ruling and frustration with Statehouse Republicans' changes to Iowa elections laws. Quote, While we are disappointed in the court's decision to shield our elected representatives from discovery, their voter suppression laws speak loud and clearly, Henry said in a statement to the Courier-Des Moines Bureau. Quote, 
our work continues, and we remain committed to protecting the right to vote in Iowa, and specifically the rights of Latino voters in Iowa, unquote. Randy Evans, executive director of the Iowa Freedom of Information Council, said the ruling betrays government transparency. Evans suggested state lawmakers should bring themselves under the state's open records law, noting that law applies to the executive branch of state government, including the governor's office and other state offices and agencies. Quote, I understand the legal reasoning upon which the Supreme Court based its decision, but the people of Iowa should be troubled by the ramifications of this ruling and should be pushing their lawmakers to take corrective action, unquote. Evans wrote in the statement to the Courier-Des Moines Bureau, quote, The decision blocks the public from having access to any comments or promises or deals lawmakers make in their emails and letters as they hash out or kill proposed laws or existing laws. Voters are deprived of knowing what trade-offs their senators and representatives make or what, quote, incentives they are offered. Quote, secrecy merely invites public suspicion and distrust, and that is not good for respect and confidence in our government, unquote. Educators favor house path to boosting teacher and staff pay. Story written by Aaron Murphy of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau. Dateline Des Moines. Multiple proposals to increase the pay of Iowa's teachers and educational support staff are moving through the Iowa Capitol, but public education advocates are particularly receptive to one version. A proposal from the majority Republicans in the Iowa House would increase the starting salary for all Iowa teachers over two years to $50,000, set a $15 minimum hourly wage for education support staff like teacher aides and devote $22 million in additional funding to increase salaries for veteran teachers. That bill advanced Monday through the House's State Budget Committee at the Iowa Capitol, as House legislators considered it from a financial perspective. The bill, House File 2611, previously received unanimous approval from the House Education Committee as a policy. The House Republican plan differs from similar proposals presented by our Governor Kim Reynolds and majority Republicans in the Iowa Senate, particularly with its added funding for veteran teacher salaries and support staff minimum wage. Melissa Peterson with the Iowa Education Association, the statewide union that represents Iowa teachers and other educational professionals, thanked Reynolds for starting the conversation but praised House Republicans' approach. Quote, We really appreciate the House's commitment to addressing what is an incredible staff shortage issue in our public schools, Peterson said. She said that Monday during a legislative hearing on the proposal. Quote, We appreciate the governor's suggestion and to invest a new $96 million to address this issue. But we really like that the House leadership is interested in addressing not just teacher compensation, but educational professional compensation as well. That's really important, unquote. The current minimum beginning teacher salary in Iowa is $33,500. The House bill 
would increase that to 47500 for the 2024-25 school year, then to 50000 for the 25-26 school year and beyond. Groups representing Iowa school boards and school administrators also expressed support for the House bill. Quote, One of our members' top priorities is addressing the teacher shortage, and we think being able to pay competitive wages is a great way to address recruitment and retention issues, as well as the investment in the support personnel like paraeducators. Michelle Johnson, with the Iowa Association of School Boards, said during Monday's hearing, quote, So overall, we think it's a great investment, unquote. Dave Doughton, with the School Administrators of Iowa, said the group supports the House bill for the same reasons and also expressed gratitude for the House approach of making the proposed increases a bill by itself, separating it from legislation that would dramatically alter the operation and funding of the state's nine area education agencies. Reynolds put the teacher pay provisions in the same bill as her AEA proposal, which has sharply divided Iowans, education advocacy groups, and state lawmakers. Quote, as has been mentioned, we have a significant teacher shortage in Iowa, as well as support staff shortage, and we need to find ways to help address that. We think this does it, Dalton said. All three members of the legislative subcommittee panel, two Republicans and one Democrat, moved to advance the House proposal out of subcommittee, and shortly afterward it was approved unanimously by the full House State Budget Committee. Quote, I've been hearing more and more about support staff as well, almost as much as teachers' salaries. So I think this is a really important bill that addresses that, said Representative Carter Nordman, a Republican from Panora, who managed the bill through both legislative steps on Monday. Quote, it's important that we attract teachers into the profession, but also retain teachers. And I think this addresses that. I think this is a good step forward, unquote. A spokesman for majority Iowa State Republicans said that caucuses weighing how all pieces of the K-12 public education funding pie for fiscal 2025, which begins July 1st, being considered this session, fit into the overall spending, including general state education funding, teacher and staff salaries, and AEA funding. Those spending levels ultimately will be negotiated by Senate and House Republican leaders. Consumer confidence slips below predictions. The index of Americans' assessment grew for the three months prior. The story comes from the Associated Press. American consumers are feeling less confident this month as concerns over a possible recession grew despite most recent data pointing to a healthy U.S. economy. The Conference Board, a business research group, said Tuesday its Consumer Confidence Index fell to 106.7 from a revised 110.9 in January. Analysts had predicted the index would remain steady from January to February. The decline in the index comes after three straight months of improvement. The index measures both Americans' assessment of current economic conditions and their outlook for the next six months. 
the index measuring Americans' short-term expectations for income, business, and the job market fell to 79.8 from 81.5 in January. Consumers' view of current conditions also retreated, falling to 147.2 from 154.9. Consumer spending accounts for about 70% of U.S. economic activity, so economists pay close attention to consumer behavior as they take measure of the broader economy. Overall, confidence is barely above the average from last year, which was 105.4, according to economist Stephen Stanley. Now, let's turn to the sports page. In high school girls basketball, three-time defending champion Dyke New Hartford rolls in 2A state opener. Dateline Des Moines. When it comes to playing three-time defending champion Dyke New Hartford, it's kind of a pick-your-poison moment in preparation. The deal is none of the poisons are an easy swallow. Tuesday, 8th-seeded Cascade decided to pack the paint and take away the Peterson Twins, Jaden and Peyton. That meant leaving sharpshooting Marlon Bixby open. Open often. The Cougars picked the wrong anecdote. Bixby knocked down seven three-pointers, five in the first half, as her 25-point game led the Wolverines to an easy cruise control 58-28 victory in a Class 2A state quarterfinal at the Wells Fargo Arena. Quote, We did a great job of moving the ball around, Bixby said. The inside is always packed. You know, Peyton and Jaden are really good down there so you have to stop them somehow. So I think that opens up the three-point lane for me, Izzy Norton and Maddie Buscall, unquote. Early on, with Cascade content to play its collapsing 2-3 zone, the two teams traded points, and it was 4-4 four four, nearly three minutes into the contest. Then Bixby was left open on the wing, and it was nothing but net. That triple started a 7-0 run, and two more first-quarter trays by Bixby saw DNH 23-2, already in complete control, leading 19-8 after one. When Bixby and Izzy Norton hit back-to-back threes midway through the second quarter, the route was on as the Wolverines had boosted their lead to 28-10 on their way to a 34-12 halftime advantage. Quote, definitely, Maurin is capable of hitting shots like that, BNH head coach Bruce Dahl said. But the team did a good job of finding her when Cascade was trying to take things away. Obviously, they weren't going to let Peterson, Peyton, to touch the ball, so our team did a good job of finding Marin. Bixby made seven of 15 three-point attempts and was 9 of 17 from the field. Meanwhile, Norton knocked down two triples, and Buscall had one, as DNH made 10 in the game. And on several of those threes, the Peterson collected assists as the duo combined for 11 of them. Jaden Peterson finished with 9 points, 17 rebounds, 
five assists, two blocks, and two steals. Payton had nine points, nine rebounds, and six assists. Quote, It is remarkable, for when teams are going to collapse it in on us, for us to be able to kick it out quickly, not only to Marin, but the people on the other side, Peyton Peterson said, that has been huge for us this year. For myself, it is growing in that part of the game. We have seen it all year. People have packed it in, and it has helped us for moments like this. Thankfully, Marin was hitting them tonight, so props to her, unquote. The victory moved DNH into a semifinal against either Eddieville, Blakesburg, Fremont, or Sioux Central in Friday at 10 a.m. The Wolverines have won 10 straight state tournament games, and their drive to win four straight state championships accomplished only one other time in state history, moved a step forward Tuesday. Quote, we wanted to play a good game today, Peyton said. We, some people who hadn't seen the floor at state, so we wanted to make sure we played a clean game, gave them a confidence that you belong down there. You can play with at a high level, really giving them confidence to be able to play well in the state tournament game, unquote. Now, in boys' high school basketball, Cedar Falls cruises to state tourney with win over Waukee Northwest. Story written by Ethan Petrick. Dateline Marshalltown. The 2023-24 Cedar Falls boys' basketball season came to a close on the floor of the Roundhouse at Marshalltown High School 364 days ago. Not a day has gone by since the Tigers' forward Cade Corbett had not thought about the 54-47 loss to Ankeny Centennial. Quote, I have not stopped thinking about that moment since it happened last year, Corbett said. The same location and everything. I just knew we had to get back there and knew we had to be everything we had, unquote. According to Cedar Falls head coach Ryan Schultz, the rest of the Tigers shared Corbett's drive. Quote, there is some familiarity with the setting for one, Schultz said. Then, for those guys that were in the game last year, I think there is a little hunger involved there with coming back and trying to right a wrong, unquote. On Tuesday night, the Tigers, 20 and 3, righted last year's wrong with a 62-42 to win over Joaquin Northwest, and they are 15-9, and in the Class 4A Substate 6 Championship. With the win, the Tigers advanced to their sixth state tournament appearance in the last seven seasons and the 14th in the program history. Schultz described the opportunity to travel and compete for a state title as a fitting conclusion for the close-knit Tigers. Quote, This group is an incredibly special group, Schultz said. All of our teams have been special in their own way, but this team has a really good feel. They have really come together since the middle of the year. It's just such a tight group all the way from 1 to number 20. The energy is infectious with this group and just the way they treat each other. They love to play the game. It is great to get those guys down there, unquote. Schultz said the catalyst for the Tigers' special nature came midway through the season when they embraced their new system and their individual roles within that system. 
quote, playing with 10 guys, playing with full court pressure, getting out and guarding all the way to half court in the half court defense, Schultz said. Part of it was getting used to the system and doing that, and part of it is just getting guys settled into roles and trusting it and trusting each other. On Tuesday, Cedar Falls used its new system to take control early on against the Wolves, storming out to an 8-0 lead as Logan Rowe managed to get a pair of early layups to go and Cade Corbett returned to the high-flying form he demonstrated against Ottumwa last Friday. After a three-pointer from Maverick Inman got Waukee Northwest on the board, Cedar Falls' Aiden Haith hit a three-pointer. Then came the second unit as Will Gertis managed a layup to give Cedar fans a 13-3 advantage with three minutes to play. A 6-0 Wolves run trimmed the lead to 13-9 as Waukee Northwest senior Luke Hart got a layup to go in the final minute to cap the run. A foul on a three-point attempt sent Cedar Falls' Anthony Galvin to the line with one second on the clock for three free throws. The junior guard got all three attempts to fall to give the Tigers a 16-9 lead after eight minutes of action. The trip to the line helped spark Gavin, who missed 10 games this season and has taken on a new role as a go-to scorer off the bench for the Tigers since returning to the court two weeks ago. Quote, it feels great to get that momentum going into state, Galvin said. It was a great fight. I feel like the first starters got us out to a good start. So after that, our second group just had to follow up, and that kind of just got us going. I just had to get something to fall. The three free throws just got me going, got my shot feeling good, got me confident, unquote. Cedar Falls' starting group returned to the floor to start the second quarter as Corbett and Keegan Steig powered a 10-0 run. Leading 26-11 after the run ended and a Stieg mid-range jumper. The Tigers never let their lead fall below 10 points as the second unit continued to be just as dominant as their starting five. Quote, it's pretty special when you have that coming off the bench and coming in waves that way, Schultz said. It can be a big strength for this team. According to Corbett, that is the exact approach the Tigers intend to bring to Des Moines next week. Quote, we have talked about it all year, Corbett said, set standards toward it, and accomplished all those goals thus far. But we still have more to do, unquote. Now turning back to local news from the Courier, OK Factor joins Waterloo Cedar Falls Symphony for fusion of classical and alt-classical music. Melody Parker wrote this story, Dateline Waterloo. Saturday's concerts at the Brown Derby Ballroom will be several firsts for the Waterloo Cedar Falls Symphony Orchestra. The 4 and 7.30 p.m. performances are the first concerts of the 2024 season and the orchestra's first-ever candlelight concerts. Quote, We'll be featuring the intimate instrumentation of Aaron Copeland's Appalachian Spring, paired with new work of Duo OK Factor, said Jason Weinberger, WCF Symphony Artistic Director and Conductor. Quote, 
We haven't been at the Brown Derby for a while, so we're returning. I'm excited about the candlelight approach, something we've never done before, he explained. Audience members will be seated in the round with 13 wind and string musicians assembled in the center of the room. The ballroom itself will be lit with more than 2,000 flameless candles. Quote, the lighting and the setting itself, which is not a typical venue for us, is very much a part of bringing concertgoers a memorable experience, Weinberger said. He describes the iconic Appalachian Spring as one of the most recognizable pieces of American music. Quote, when people hear it, it's likely they've heard it their entire lives. It's so recognizable and familiar. Originally a ballet created by Copland and fabled choreographer Martha Graham, the celebrated composition was later arranged as an orchestral work. Copland's masterpiece, which is musically very demanding for musicians, bridges the gap between musical worlds of classical and the Minneapolis-based OK Factors alt-classical music. They will be performing all newly created charts for the OK Factor and orchestra. Quote, we're calling it the OK Factor Suite. It will be a world premiere, which is very exciting for us, said Weinberger. Tickets for either show are limited, and they are available at www.wcfsymphony.org or by calling the Gallagher Blue Dorn box office at area code 319-273-4849. And now, listeners, we just want to take a moment to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, February 28th, and you're listening on IRIS, that's I-R-I-S, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and the Print Handicapped. Now, this announcement. If you're anxious about retirement, if you can't stop worrying about your aging parents' health, if you're depressed because you feel like you're losing everyone you love, turn to Your Life Iowa. Anxiety and depression are real illnesses. Let us connect you to someone who can help, because mental health is health. Get the help you need to start feeling better at yourlifeiowa.org. We're a free helpline where you can talk, text, or chat 24-7. Brought to you by Iowa HHS. Now let's turn to the opinion section. Our first editorial today comes from the New York Times, and it's titled, IVF is a Miracle. For Republicans, it's a landmine. This is the opinion of Kristen Saltis Anderson, and it's dated February 27th. The grief of infertility can be all-consuming, but also hard to fully grasp for anyone who has blessedly never experienced it. It is an unusual grief a grief about lives not yet begun, rather than lives that have come to an end. It also asserts itself most powerfully in moments of joy, the laugh of a toddler in a park, the smile of a mother-to-be at a baby shower. It can haunt you when you are living through it and stick with you even if the day comes where you are lucky enough to be called mommy. For years, I lived with that grief. Today, I am called Mommy. I am a person of faith, 
and I believe children are miraculous blessings. I am also of the mind that science is one way that miracles are made possible in the world. Even in the darkest hours of my long journey to motherhood, hope existed for me and my husband in the form of in vitro fertilization. As a result of the recent Alabama Supreme Court decision permitting would-be parents to sue for wrongful death over the negligent destruction of IVF and created embryos, the hope and miracles that I was blessed to experience are at risk for families whose clinics have suspended treatments. To the extent that Alabama's laws have now been interpreted in such a way that IVF is at least temporarily unavailable, I am hopeful that policymakers in the state will take rapid action to put policies in place to protect it. As a political pollster, I often give data-driven advice to elected leaders, warning of the consequences that could befall them if they do not carefully navigate contentious issues. While the latest debate over IVF is a potential electoral landmine for Republicans, GOP leaders from the House Speaker Mike Johnson to Donald Trump have already gotten the memo. An actual memo was sent to Republican candidates that IVF is such a popular innovation that even a large portion of pro-life America finds it worthy of protection. At the same time, you need not be a religious fundamentalist to consider the embryos produced by IVF as having significant meaning or the question of their disposition to be unbearably fraught. I am one of those patients who has thought deeply about the tensions between life-giving potential of IVF and the complicated bioethical debates around the embryos created through that process, wrestling with the tough questions of what I might do if the process led to embryos I could not reasonably carry. I have come away a strong advocate for ensuring families can overcome the adversity of infertility and bring life into this world through this treatment if they so choose. My husband and I met and married in our 20s. We had discussed and agreed that we would eventually like to be parents. After a few years, I told my doctor I was concerned that we hadn't conceived yet. I remain furious at myself to this day for accepting his dismissal of my concerns. Quote, Just relax, it'll happen. It did not. As so many women do, for years I blamed myself. My job is too busy. I travel too much. I'm too stressed. When we were both 33, my husband and I decided to seek answers. It was both a blessing and a curse that our diagnosis was clear and incontrovertible. We were told that becoming pregnant would be difficult and would require surgery, followed by IVF. Knowing the odds were against us, we nevertheless held out hope and started treatment. After a year with nothing to show for our efforts and an ensuing pause during which we considered alternatives, suddenly a new egg retrieval gave us the incredible blessing of six embryos. The first embryo resulted in a few weeks of joy with a positive pregnancy test, but that happiness curdled when an early ultrasound revealed my pregnancy had ended in what is known as a missed miscarriage. 
our remaining embryos each led to a different form of heartbreak, negative tests, early miscarriages, flickering heartbeats on ultrasounds that had gone out by the next appointment. Compounding the pain was the fact that each time I went to an embryo transfer, I looked hopefully at the little blastocyst on the monitor and thought, I love you and I hope to meet you soon. Whenever I would get the bad news that a pregnancy had ended, I felt powerfully that I was saying a very real goodbye. When you are in the thick of infertility treatment, life can sometimes feel like a series of devastatingly hard choices, miserable doctor visits, and earth-shattering phone calls. I simply cannot imagine what it would be like to be the hopeful Alabama parents-to-be of those embryos, hearing the news that their dreams had been shattered by an unauthorized person pulling them out of a storage freezer. As I try to put myself in their shoes, I can easily imagine how they saw those embryos as more than mere cells in a dish, suspended in their development and frozen in time. I do not, for one second, fault the plaintiffs for considering their embryos to be their children, awaiting their moment to be born, now irretrievably lost. At the same time, I cannot imagine that those plaintiffs who had built their dreams of family on this incredible technology wanted their quest for justice to lead to the closing of this door to other families like them. There is a reason such large numbers of conservative and pro-life Americans believe that IVF is worthy of protection. In a world where so many on the right bemoan declining birth rates or the state of the American family, the ability to unlock the gift of life for those who desperately seek to bring it into this world is a powerful force for good. In just the past five years alone, the number of Americans who know someone who has undergone fertility treatment has risen significantly, so it also most likely follows that more people than ever know a child in their life who is here on this earth as a result of fertility treatment. Years ago, I was told it would be challenging, if not impossible, for me to ever have a child. In a matter of days, I will give birth to my second daughter, a sentence that still remains incomprehensible to me. As I write this, sleeping just upstairs is my firstborn, Elena, whose name means God has answered. Every time I look at her beautiful face, I am grateful for the answer to my years of prayer. I do not take a moment with her for granted, and I do not take for granted that it is only through a miracle of faith and science in tandem that I am called Mommy today. Kristen Saltis Anderson is a Republican pollster and a moderator of Opinion's series of focus groups. Now, from the New York Times, Opinion writer Paul Krugman, The Mystery of White Rural Rage. Will technological progress lead to mass unemployment? People have been asking that question for two centuries, and the actual answer has always ended up being no. Technology eliminates some jobs, but it has always generated enough new jobs to offset those losses, and there's every reason to believe that it will continue to do so for the foreseeable future. But progress isn't painless. Business types and some economists 
may talk glowingly about the virtues of creative destruction, but the process can be devastating, economically and socially, for those who find themselves on the destruction side of the equation. This is especially true when technological change undermines not just individual workers, but also whole communities. It isn't a hypothetical proposition. It's a big part of what has happened to rural America. This process and its effects are laid out in devastating, terrifying, and baffling detail in White Rural Rage, The Threat to American Democracy, a new book by Tom Schaller and Paul Waldman. I say devastating because the hardship of rural Americans is real, terrifying because the political backlash to this hardship poses a clear and present danger to our democracy, and baffling because at some level I still don't get the politics. Technology is the main driver of rural decline, Schaller and Waldman argue. Indeed, American farms produce more than five times as much as they did 75 years ago, but the agricultural workforce declined by about two-thirds over the same period, thanks to machinery, improved seeds, fertilizers, and pesticides. Coal production has been falling recently, but thanks partly to technologies like mountaintop removal, coal mining is a way of life, largely disappeared long ago, with the number of miners falling 80%, even as production roughly doubled. The decline of small-town manufacturing is a more complicated story, and imports play a role. But it's also mainly about technological change that favors metropolitan areas with large numbers of highly educated workers. Technology, then, has made America as a whole richer, but it has reduced economic opportunities in rural areas. So why don't rural workers go where the jobs are? Some have, but some cities have become unaffordable in part because of restrictive zoning. One thing blue states get wrong, while many workers are also reluctant to leave their families and communities. So, shouldn't we aid these communities? We do. Federal programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and more, are available to all Americans, but are disproportionately financed from taxes paid by affluent urban areas. As a result, there are huge de facto transfers of money from rich urban states like New Jersey to poor, relatively rural states like West Virginia. While these transfers somewhat mitigate the hardship facing rural America, they don't restore the sense of dignity that has been lost along with the rural jobs. And maybe that loss of dignity explains both white rural rage and why that rage is so misdirected why it's pretty clear that this November a majority of rural white Americans will again vote against Joe Biden, who, as president, has been trying to bring jobs to their communities, and for Donald Trump, a huckster from Queens who offers little other than vindication for their resentment. This feeling of a loss of dignity may be worsened because some rural Americans have long seen themselves as more industrious, more patriotic, and maybe even morally superior to the denizens of big cities, an attitude still expressed in cultural artifacts 
like Jason Aldean's hit song, Try That in a Small Town. In the crudest sense, rural and small-town America is supposed to be filled with hard-working people who adhere to traditional values, not like those degenerate urbanites on welfare, but the economic and social reality doesn't match this self-image. Prime working-age men outside metropolitan areas are substantially less likely than their metropolitan counterparts to be employed, not because they're lazy, but because the jobs just aren't there. The gap is much smaller for women, perhaps because the jobs supported by federal aid tend to be female-coded, such as those in health care. Quite a few rural states also have high rates of homicide, suicide, and births to single mothers. Again, not because rural Americans are bad people, but because social disorder is, as a sociologist William Julius Wilson argued long ago about urban problems, what happens when work disappears. Draw attention to some of these realities, and you'll be accused of being a snooty urban elitist. I'm sure responses to this column will be interesting. The result, which at some level I still find hard to understand, is that many white rural voters support politicians who tell them lies they want to hear. It helps explain why the maggot narrative casts relatively safe cities like New York as crime-ridden hellscapes, while rural America is the victim not of technology, but of illegal immigrants, wokeness, and the deep state. At this point, you're probably expecting a solution to this ugly political situation. Schaller and Waldman do offer some suggestions, but the truth is that while white rural rage is arguably the single greatest threat facing American democracy, I have no good ideas about how to fight it. Now this from the Storm Lake Times pilot, editor Art Cullen. A campaign gift. Republican legislators are giving state auditor Rob Sand a great campaign issue as he explores running for governor as a Democrat. The Iowa Senate voted Tuesday along party lines to allow state agencies to hire private accounting firms to conduct their annual audits required by law instead of using the auditor's office. Last year, the legislature stripped the auditor of many of his investigative powers. Sand and Democratic senators claim Republicans are trying to kneecap the auditor. Sand says that diminishing the auditor's role in these stages will lead to less public oversight and more corruption. Republicans said that the agencies could save money by using private certified public accounting firms. The Legislative Service Agency reported that actual charges from private companies were higher than the $85 per hour charged by the state auditor. The lowest reported private rate was $93 per hour. Some rates were twice that. Sand is the only Democrat holding a statewide elective office. As such, it makes him a big target for the GOP. It also makes him a leading contender for governor as 2026 approaches. He will make a strong argument that Republicans are afraid of him because he stands for squeaky clean government. The auditor has been a model of restraint, which is a point of frustration. 
the wholesale reform of privatization of Medicaid occurred while the auditor and attorney general largely stood aside. Tom Miller lost his job as attorney general to Brenna Bird. After the damage was done, Sand did release a report on some parts of the privatization. At the local level, we begged for a state audit of missing tax increment financing revenue. Sand said that he could not get involved because he was not properly asked to do so. The city of Storm Lake claims that it did inquire with his office. Whatever the case, no audit, private or public, has been performed to our knowledge. No study has been done on how tax increment financing accounted for statewide. We suspect Buena Vista County is not alone. But we will never know, especially if the Republicans emasculate the constitutional office. Sand certainly can make the point that he never abused his authority. Why are Republicans acting like they're afraid of Sand? Iowans elected him because they want an adversary watching over the administration. Efforts to rein him in will only fuel his primary and general election campaigns. While setting up himself for his successor in the auditor's office to run on the same issue, other Democrats will run for Secretary of State, Treasurer, and Attorney General as fiscal watchdogs and saviors of democracy. Republicans are helping to rebuild the shattered Iowa Democratic Party by giving them an issue that every Iowa voter can understand. Next, contributor Rick Moraine wrote this editorial in the Storm Lake Times pilot, titled, Patriotism or Parental Rights. I don't remember when or where I learned the national anthem or the other American patriotic songs or the Pledge of Allegiance. I know I was pretty young when I committed them to memory, but I don't remember the occasions or the process, nor do I remember whether I learned them in school or in some other venue. I also don't remember whether my grade school classes recited the Pledge of Allegiance to open the school day. We may have. Maybe some of my classmates can set me straight about that. We didn't acknowledge God therein. That part was added in 1954. My mom was my Cub Scout den mother, and my dad was my Boy Scout troop scoutmaster. I learned the Cub Scout motto, the Scout oath, the Scout law, the Scout motto, and the Scout slogan from them, and they may also have been my teachers for the American patriotic material. In my childhood Sunday school, the religious education director taught us a pledge that we all recited while standing each Sunday morning, quote, I promise, God helping me, to abstain from the use of alcoholic beverages in any form. We also learned the pledge to the Christian flag, and some of my friends in other denominations learned the pledge to the Bible. There was a whole lot of pledging going on, and I didn't think any of it was out of the ordinary. It was just what you did at the time. It was what good patriots, good scouts, good Christians, and good kids did. In Jefferson, in the 1940s and early 1950s. It was part of my family's culture, and it was knee-jerk automatic. It wasn't until later that I learned that in some places, not all folks, even in the Judeo-Christian tradition, believed in pledging allegiance, spoken or sung, to a country or its flag, 
or even in standing while others made those recitations. The youngsters' obedience to their parents' wishes cost them friendships and earned them jeers and worse from their classmates. The beliefs their parents handed down to them violated what their public school required of them, and they paid the price through their classmates and some teachers' intolerance. Kids from families in those traditions, and in some other religious traditions as well, would face similar opprobrium in public school under a bill in Iowa House Subcommittee passed 2-1 to one, and sent to the Full House Education Committee a couple of weeks ago. The bill, if enacted by the legislature and signed by the governor, would require public school students to open each day by standing and singing one of the verses of the national anthem. At special events, the school would require the singing of all four of the national anthem's verses. Lots to consider about that. First, even the first verse is a lot for early grade school youngsters to master. It's a pretty lengthy stanza, as are each of the other three verses. The melody ranges over one and a half plus octaves, something that challenges the range of most people, let alone children. And how many Americans, young or old, can sing all four stanzas of the anthem? Second, the meaning of some of the wording, even in the first verse, is beyond the understanding of kids in the early grades. It would be simply committing to rote memory some passages of multisyllabic words whose message would be pretty much lost on them. And what about those young Iowans whose family, religion, or belief frowns on singing an anthem about an earthly government. But wait, there's more. The bill that would require singing the Star-Spangled Banner would also require public school social studies classes to teach how to love, honor, and respect the national anthem. It's not just opening the school day with the song, it's studying it in class as well. Since the national anthem has held an important place in the nation's history for many decades, it would be a worthwhile object for a school's history curriculum. That's no problem as far as I'm concerned. But the devil, of course, is in the details. The course prospectus could include biographical material about the anthem's author Francis Scott Key, the circumstances in which he penned the lyrics, the, or the origin of the melody, and the objectives of the Americans and the British in the War of 1812 when Key wrote the piece, in addition to the patriotic values stated within it. Still, House Study Bill 587, the proposal about the national anthem, seems to me to be a bridge too far. Most parents probably have no problem with their youngsters learning the national anthem in school, and probably would have little objection to having them sing it every day as well. But that's most parents. Some, for reasons of conscience, would not be happy about it, and their wishes should be considered. The mantra of state government in Iowa these days is that parents know what's best for their kids. That's the argument the state uses to require legislative school appropriations to follow the students, whether to a public school or a private one. It's what the state has said about vaccination requirements for kids. The fact that House Study Bill 587 would apply only to public schools, but not to private ones, reinforces that orientation. Apparently, 
only public school students are in jeopardy of flagging patriotism. The bill's proponents would leave it up to parents of private school students to decide whether to bring their kids up to speed on the national anthem, whether at school or at home. If you're a parent who chooses to send your youngster to public school, you relinquish your right to teach your child your preferred version of patriotism. Under that circumstance, the state's version of patriotism trumps parental rights. Rick Moraine is a reporter and columnist with the Jefferson Herald. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, February 28th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can listen to a recording of this reading of the Courier or of the other newspapers around the state that we read. Just visit our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your Iris. I was first and only radio reading.